the period, the period of the year that we're in, it's a seven-week-long stretch of the period known as Sfira Saomer, between Pesach and Shavuos. We count the Omer every single day. And it goes for seven weeks, plus one day, between the second day of Pesach and Shavuos, a total of 50 days that we count. On the one hand, when you say Sfira, or Sfira Saomer, that's what we're referring to. It's a mitzvah in the Raisa, according to many even nowadays, to count the Omer, to make a count, a countdown, if you will, between Pesach and Shavuos. Additionally, though, when you say the word Sfira, it has a different connotation to most people. Oh, Sfira, okay, you got to grow a beard by some people, grow beards, you know, shave, you know, listen to music, you know, weddings. It's a kind of a semi-mourning period. As a result, you have a kind of a mixed emotion and a mixed outlook. When you hear the word Sfira, you have kind of ambivalent feelings how to assimilate those two types of emotions and feelings and why they coincide why they seem to coincide and seemingly go in different directions and what they represent that's what I'd like to learn about <coughs> today and maybe continue on it in the middle of this period of course is Lagba Omer Lagba Omer is not really mentioned certainly not in the Torah not even mentioned in the Gemara, and um, its origins, as well as what it represents and what its celebrations are, are somewhat shrouded in mystery, and there's a great deal of confusion about it, the same way there's a kind of an ambivalence about Sphira in general, Mark Bomer, well, as kids you remember going out on trips, somehow or other Mark Bomer becomes associated with field trips bows and arrows, bonfires, in Israel at least. And of course there's something about Roshimim Bar Yochoi and all of this. But again, it's a lot of confusion. <laughs> I'd like to discuss the significance of Lagba Omer as well. Why it's such a significant day in the Jewish calendar. In fact, it's so significant and people are so confused about it and so unsure about it. So let's see what we can come up with about Lag Bomer. Well, I mentioned that Lag Bomer, of course, has no real Torah source. Does Lag Bomer have any kind of a hint or an allegory or some sort of a metaphor or something? Any hint in the Torah for Lag Bomer? As we said, that Lag Bomer is not only on a rabbinic level, but it's not even mentioned in the Gemara. It's not even mentioned anywhere in the Gemara. So where would there be Lag Bomer mentioned anywhere in the Torah? I'd like to now start off by showing you that Lag Bomer actually has its origins in the very, very first Lag Bomer of Jewish history, which happened when the Jews came out of Egypt. Something happened on Lag Bomer. And let's see if any of those things that happened then carry through to our modern and present celebrations of Lag Bomer. So let's go to Parshas B'Shalach. 
That's what we're going to find the first Lark Bomer. How do I know that there's a Lark Bomer mentioned there? Now let's look around. The Jews left Egypt. Right? They left Egypt and Parshas Bishalach begins with the crossing of the Red Sea. The crossing of the Red Sea was on what day? Was it on Lark Bomer? Emphatically, no. Let's now turn to page 165. <coughs> and in it, we see that the Jews crossed the Red Sea. They went for another few days. They didn't find water. They came to Mara. They threw something in. The water sweetened. Then says, Vayisume Eilim Pasuk Aleph. Perktazayim. Vayavo Kola Das Yisrael Midbar Sin. And all of the congregation of Israel came to Midbar Sina, Shebein Eilu Vein Sinai, Bachamisha Osir Yom Lachodesh Hashem Gilutes of the Eretz Mitzrayim. On the 15th, they came to Midbar Sin. They complained the following day. They arrived on the 15th. The next day, they complained to, um, to Moshe. Moshe goes to Hashem. <coughs> Hashem on the 17th, <coughs> promises them, okay, I have heard your cries, and I will give you Mon tomorrow. You'll see Mon come down. <coughs> the following morning, the Mon came down. That was the 18th of Eor. The 18th of Eor is Lag Bomer. The 18th of Eor is Lag Bomer. Says the Chassam Seifer, rather propitiously, the Mon began on Lag Bomer. So the very first time that the Jews were out of Egypt happened to have been the first log is when the month began for the next 40 years. Interestingly enough that you find throughout the entire chapter of the month coincidentally, you find the word Omer constantly used. Right? Take a, let's just take a brief look at this. If you notice their Pasuk Tezayin, this is the command, the word that God commands. Each person should should um, gather from it. Each man according to his capacity to eat. Omer, an Omer's worth, lagugolos per person. According to the number of people in your families. Each man according to the people in his tent. Tikochu, you shall take. The Balaturim points out that in this pasuk you have the entire alphabet. Every letter of the alphabet of the Hebrew alphabet is contained in this pasuk of Zad Dovar Shetivu Hashem. That's the little Balaturim beneath you. Loy Marloch Kol Amikayim Es Hatayra Hakadosh Baruch Hu. If a person learns Torah and fulfills the Torah, the letters of the alphabet, you fulfill the Torah, the Chof Beis, Oisius of the Torah, the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. If you want to check, you'll see it's all there, from Aleph Beis, Gimel Dal, all the way through Tov, is in that Pasuk. A person that fulfills the letters of the Torah, so to speak, and fulfills the entire Torah, keeps the Torah, observes the Torah, learns the Torah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu provides him with Parnassim. There's a statement that the Gemara says, Lo nitna Torah elol och leimon, 
which is something which we'll come back to a number of times to, to discuss what this means. That the Torah was only given to those that ate manna. The Torah ultimately, Shavuos, was given to the Jewish people who were provided for by manna. Those that ate manna, they were the ones that were provided with the Torah. And for that reason, the Gemara says, the Torah was only given to manna eaters. And therefore, the lesson of the manna is bound up with the Torah. Now the Omer that's mentioned in this Pasuk is only coincidental. But, where else do we have the Omer mentioned? So again, if you're going to look throughout the entire parsha over here, you'll see how the word Omer is used very often. That what you see from all of this is that the amounts were significant, miraculously. It wasn't just like Harry says, an arbitrary measure. Because this particular arbitrary measure becomes a fundamental nature in the month. And therefore we're able to discover guilt and innocence in terms of fidelity and households and certain other a- aspects. It says that the month was able to whiten Jewish sins and family. That's what the Kizera uh, got love on as it says. So again, the Gemara Yuma describes in much greater detail, we learned this, about, about the nature of the mon regarding this. But as Miles is pointing out, qualitatively, the mon had various tastes. Yet quantitatively, it was always fixed with the Omer. And there's many other measures that it could have been, but it was always with the Omer. If you look at the bottom of the page, Vayomer Moshe, the bottom of the page. Hashem. Here again, we have the same expression used as we had earlier. Hashem. Take an Omer's worth. And even though the man would miraculously spoil immediately, except for Shabbos, Moshe Rabbeinu says, take an Omer's worth and place it in a jar and keep it forever as a sign for the Jewish people, an everlasting sign. In order that they should see this miraculous month. So again, Hashem says to, uh, to Moshe, again, take specifically an Omer's worth, an Omer's worth, as a sign, an everlasting sign for all future generations. You turn to page 168. Bayomer Moshe Aaron, Kach Sinsenes Achas Vesen Shoma Muloiha Oimer, take a jug and place in it an Omer's worth, and place it in the base of Migdash or the Mishkan as an everlasting sign. And as Hashem commanded, that's what Aaron did. And it goes on and it concludes, if you notice, with the last postic right before Shvi. Tells you exactly the amount of the Omer. Again, it's using the, the, the amount of the Omer, but notice that considering it's merely just a measure, it's getting a lot of play and a lot of repetition over here. So obviously the word Omer then becomes significant. So Aaron takes this Omer's worth of mon and puts it in a jar to be, an, to be a sign to the Jewish people. Everlasting sign. The May Yirmiyahu it says, in the days of Yirmiyahu the prophet, Kishahoya Yirmiyahu Maychicham Lomo Einatem Oiskim B'Tayr. 
Yirmiya is now rebuking them. How come Jews aren't learning enough Torah? To which they said, What are we going to do? We got to work for a living. We got to horror. We got to schwitz. So the Jews, when Yirmiya rebukes them, why don't you learn Torah? Replied, Parnasa. Where are we going to get Parnasa from? To which Yirmiya says, takes out the man omr lehem atem you ru'udvar Hashem see the word of God shimuloi nemar el ru'u doesn't say listen to the word of God it says see the word of God in other words the pasuk in Yirmiya when he's rebuking them says see the word of God I mean, usually you should say hear the word of God listen to the word of God what does it mean see the word of God because this is referring to this Pasuk over here where the Pasuk says place the man so that in some future time the man yiru es halechem for they should see it zehadavar this is the word of God the man yiru in order that they should see it so Yirmiya shows them the man this is how your forefathers and ancestors were sustained God has many ways of providing sustenance for those that fear Him. Therefore, says the Balaturim, in the earlier Pasuk, this is the word of God, here's the month, this is going to sustain you. In that Pasuk, in the entire olive base, because it's alluding to this idea, God has many ways of granting Parnosa to the God-fearing to those that fear God and observe and keep the Torah. This was Yermia's point. So again, the man becomes an expression of have faith in Hashem. Now we have a little bit of an insight in the Pasuk that we, in, in the Gemara statement that we said earlier. Lo nitna Torah elol The Torah was only given to man eaters. In other words, you have to be a man eater and live with this kind of an approach in order for the Torah to be granted to you. You have to go with this act of faith. And those that do have that faith and learn Torah, God grants them the Torah. God only grants the Torah to money-eaters. Alternatively, God only grants mon to Torah learners. It really goes, you know, they're both mirror images of each other. God grants Torah to money-eaters. God grants mon to Torah learners. That is what the Balaturim says. That in that Pasuk you have the entire olive days with the Mon. Because the two are really interconnected. That if you keep the Torah, you get Mon. Actually it says that in the honor of who did the Mon come down? It was in the honor of Moshe. Moshe was the lawgiver. It was in his merit that we got the Mon. So if you learn Torah, you get Mon. That's what, that's what the Baal says is the message in that Pasuk. And again, we find that the Mon was, was used and utilized later on by Yirmiya to rebuke the people that weren't learning enough Torah. Learn Torah, don't worry, God will provide Mon if you learn Torah. Alternatively, the reverse. Only people that live that kind of a lifestyle that are willing to subsist on Mon are the proper recipients for the giving of Torah. 
Now, the word Omer that's used over here, which when you first go through the parsha, it doesn't really seem that significant. I'm just merely pointing out how the measure, which is all of this is a measure, is used so much. Now if you turn to page 306. Bring an omer's worth of the first harvest to the to the coin to the base of mikdash. The heinif es haomer tapa three o seven. You'll do a waving ceremony with the omer, and you'll bring certain kinds of korbanos. It then goes on. If you look in Pasik Tesvav, which we still do today, you will make a count from the second day of Pesach, from the time of the waving of this Omer, seven weeks, all the way until Shavuos. This is the only other place where the Omer is mentioned. Now the Omer was this, this innocuous measure, and yet the entire the entire chapter dealing with this particular Corbin, as well as the mitzvah dealing with the count, is being hooked up with the Omer, which is the measure, rather than with Pesach. I mean, you know, we're so used to counting the Omer, so everybody lost sight of this, but I mean, isn't it a little strange? Why don't we just count this is the first day since Pesach, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day. Why are we not counting down from Pesach, or counting up to Shavuos, what is the Omer? And the Omer was merely the measure of the Korban. And the Korban itself is referred to by its, by its measure, which was the Omer. So, it's almost as if it's forcing you to somehow make this connection between the Omer that we have by Mon and the Omer that we have over here by Sviras Omer, as well as the Korban Omer. The Corbin Omer was merely just the Corbin of barley. If anything, we should talk about it, and which is also an unusual Corbin that was made out of barley. Barley is only used by the Sota or by sin offerings. The fact that they make an offering out of barley is rather unusual. So we should count it from the Mincha of the barley, or count it up to the Mincha of Shavuos, which is a wheat offering. It was also an unusual offering. It was made out of Chomets. So if we want to take certain significant features of the Corbin, we could peg it into any of those things, as well as, of course, the major festival itself, Pesach or Shavuos. So we should make our count based on Pesach, based on Shavuos, based on the Korban of Pesach or the Korban of Shavuos, or any other things but Omer. But let's say that the word Omer is the equivalent of, of uh, six liters. So can you imagine if we have the whole count and the whole Pesach Shavuos period, we're counting down in anticipation. Now we're three days from the eight liters, and now we're four days from the eight liter. I mean, what does the measure have to do with anything here? And the only other place where we have this quantitative nature mentioned, and again, disproportionately to seemingly its significance, is the month. So it's also drawing your attention to the month. But again, notice again the parallel. Lo nitna Torah el It's almost like making you think of the month again over here. And what exactly is this Omer offering in this period? And we have to make a count. Ironically enough, 
when you think about it from an agricultural standpoint, it's also a little bit confusing this period because, you know, we're talking about countdown and anticipation to Shavuos. It's a spiritual time that we should be thinking about. I mean, it happens to coincide with the time that everybody's involved in the wheat and barley harvest. This, I mean, this is when everybody was busy with this stuff. It wasn't, you know, to, to us nowadays, it's not exactly a um, part of the year where we think of it as more Parnosa-oriented. I mean, all of the plowing and the planting was all done in anticipation of this period of the year, where the stuff is starting to grow and people are harvesting it. The main reason why we read Rus on Shavuos is because of the time period that, that Rus speaks about it was the harvest season. That was during this period. So, I mean, it's rather strange that in the period when people are most actively involved in gathering their own parnasa and gathering their own wheat and barley is the time that we're counting down in anticipation of the Torah and we refer to the count not by its Torah aspect but by its parnasa aspect. Maybe that's why we're doing it. Maybe. But again, the Torah is being granted to those that eat mon. But here we're doing it not with mon, but we're doing it with barley and with wheat and with that. But again, it's drawing your attention to the to the fact that the, the only two places where we find these things are here in this pasture where we deal with with the with the omer as an offering, which is also a little bit mysterious and unexplained. It doesn't really fit into the rest of the festivals. The parsha over here deals with the festivals: Pesach, Shmuelus, Sukkot, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. You know, it starts off with Shabbos, it goes to Pesach, it goes to Shavuos, it goes to Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Shmini Atzeres. And in the middle it sidetracks itself with this entire section about the Omer and the gathering of the Omer. And there's a whole mitzvah attached to it called Count with Omer in the middle of the festivals. And there's something over here. Now, again, by drawing our attention to the month, we now have one more component, and that's what the Chassam Seifer says. Now, when did the Mon actually begin? It began Lag Bomer. Notice there's no mention made of Lag Bomer in any of this in the Torah. But it comes out that the Torah itself, in discussing the Omer, and drawing your attention to the Mon, and the Mon actually began Lag Bomer, already gives us a kind of a mysterious significance to this holiday that goes back to the very first Lag Bomer. So the very first Lag Bomer, that's when the Mon began. That's what the Chassam Seifer says. But now I'd like to learn with you another Chassam Seifer and place everything on a much more mystical level. Where else do we have the number 33 in the Torah? Lag Bomer, I mean, 33. Where else do we have the number 33 in the Torah? It's interesting that mentioning the number 33... The, every Mesechta in every Yontav has its own Mesechta in Shas. There's a Mesechta for Shabbos. There's a Mesechta for Yom Kippur, Yuma. A Mesechta for Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah. A Mesechta even for Purim, which would be Megillah. What's the Mesechta for Shavuos? Chagiga. Chagiga is for all Yom Tov, and it has to do with the Korban. Be'eth, it would have been a better shot. Because Be'eth is the Mesechta of Yontav. Bay is called Mesechtas Yantav. It's called Mesechtas Bay was referred in earlier times to Mesechtas Yantav that deals with Yantav and Yantav. But it's generic. 
but for specifically for each holiday, for Pesach there's Pesachim, for Purim there's Megillah, for Rosh Hashanah there is Rosh Hashanah, for Yuma, for Yom Kippur there's Yuma, for Sukkot there's Sukkah. Is there a Masech Shuos in Shas? There's a Masech Shuos. Of course, there's nothing to do with Shuos at all. The word Shuos in that sense means oaths, like the Dharma. But it happens to be called Shuos. Just coincidentally, actually, actually, the Masech that will be most appropriate for Shuos is the Masech of Bikur, because Shuos is related to Bikur. There's no real mention of the holiday there other than the laws of Bikur. But there is a Masechet in Shas called Shavuos. So you'd think that Masechet Shavuos has to do with Shavuos. No, it certainly doesn't. That's to do with oaths, and the word Shavuos over there doesn't mean festival of weeks. That's to do with oaths. So everybody makes the mistake of thinking Shavuos. However, if you open up the Masechet, you will discover that there's 49 blot Memtes. It goes to the Memtes. It goes to the Memtes. Strangely enough, 49 coincidentally. Even more coincidentally, on Daf Lamed Gimel and Lamed Dalet, you have Rav Shimon Bar Yochai and his son Rav Lozav Rav Shimon mentioned. Really? On Daf Lamed Gimel Lamed Dalet. Interestingly enough, the story of of Rav of Rav Shimon Bar Yochai and the cave, which we've learned about, which when we eventually get to, we'll discuss at greater length as to its significance to Lag Vomer, is a Daf Lamed Gimel in the Sechta Shabbos as well. So when I said earlier, where else do we have the number 33? So you say, well, 33, it's... Uh, it, it is mentioned in a few places we have the number 33. And each of these things, interestingly enough, are related to either the count of 49 days, Rav Shem Bar Yochoi, Lag Bomer. Again, you have all of these hints and allusions in the, ta- in the, in this case, not the Torah, but in, in Shas, to Rav Shem Bar Yochoi and the cave, which was a Lag Bomer. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss it, we'll discuss it, to... But where else do we have in the Torah the mention of 33? Oh, that's what Richard was saying earlier. The number of days after a woman gives birth. That's correct. That's correct. Let's turn to that. Parshas Tazria. If a woman gets pregnant and subsequently gives birth to a male child. The Tomo Shibas Yom Kimeinidas Devoisa Titma. She's now Tomei for seven days after the birth. Ubayom Ashmini on the eighth day, Yimo Besaro Loso, you give him a circumcision. Notice how mother and child are placed together in terms of this birthday. Now we talk about nowadays when you use the word birthday, you keep thinking about the day that you were born. But actually, it's the day that your mother gave birth. It also happens to be the day that you came into the world. But birthday literally means the day that your mother gave birth. Seven days after your mother gave birth, she's tummy for seven days. Eight days after your mother gave birth is also the eighth day in your life, which is now the day that you're um, getting your bismillah. Then it says, Ushloishim yayim ushloishis yamin. And for 33 days, she now has what's called Tahar. I'm not going to go into all of the details, but she's not completely Tahar until day 40. And therefore, when she finally finishes day 40, she cannot even go to the base of Migdash, to the sanctuary, 
until she fills her entire days of of Tara, which means that you have to add the seven days of Nida that she's Tomei with the 33 days of Dab Tohar to a total of 40 and then she's Tohar in the case of a female child everything is doubled two weeks she's Tomei that's 66 days and then at day 80 she brings a certain Corbin and she comes to the Kohen etc so here is the only other place in the Torah where the number 33 itself is being used 33 days so what's happening with this 33 days exactly? Well, we know that the 33 days adds up with the 7 to total 40. That's really the way we normally understand this. The child now is also 40 days old. The child is 40 days old. So is that a significant time in his life? Well, it's also 33 days after his bris meal. Why is it a significant time in his life? So the Tsar says that that's when his neshama finally settles in his in his guf, in his body. However, when does the neshama begin? The neshama begins to enter his body, except for the natural neshama that comes from birth. By your bris meal, you get your Jewish neshama. Apparently, it takes 33 days after the bris for all of this to settle. Corresponding to the woman, she... And she begins her first phase of Tara by the bris, and it takes her another 33 days till she becomes completely Tar. So therefore it comes out that the woman, in a sense, parallels what the child is going through. She is Tome for seven days, like the child is an oral for those seven days. On the eighth day, the child now enters the covenant, the woman goes to the mikvah, and she goes to the mikvah. So on the day of the bridge, she's going to the mikvah and becoming tar. And she's now going through a process of settling in till she concludes her tara for another 33 days, which the Tsar says corresponds to the, to the nishamas settling in to the boy's body after the bris. Okay, so now we have another kind of a mystical thing with the 33. Comes the chsan cipher again. Take a look at your page on the bottom. The bottom right. Says the Chassam Soifer, Ubezayar Isa, Miyoyim Hamila, Shemaschil Haneshoma Hakadoisha, Lichnois Betoich Hagufa Yisraeli. From the time of the Brismila, when the Neshoma Hakadoisha, the Holy Soul, enters the Jewish body, Einon Misyashevis Al Mukaymoy, Haroy, it doesn't fully settle. Ad achar lamed gimel yoyim for another thirty-three days. Ubezei yishloavin echod meyatayim shalak ba'omer. With this, we can understand another, another piece of this lag ba'omer puzzle. Why? What is that lag ba'omer? When were the Jews circumcised? Right before they ate the korban pesach. They also needed thirty-three days of settling in of their neshama. So therefore, when did their neshama settle in? In the very first Pesach. Therefore he says, The Holy Spirit, the Holy Divine Spirit, didn't fully settle. Of course, 
on the first night of Pesach, they already had some of this, because God passed over, and they, had, and they begin to count. The count actually begins from the second day, because the first day was considered rather unique. In the Torah itself, we find that the first day of Pesach is considered out of the ordinary. It's an extraordinary day. In fact, the Torah actually refers to it as a Shabbos. So it doesn't even count. That's one of the reasons why we count the Sphira from the second day, rather than the first day of Pesach. Normally, we begin all counts from a first day or a last day. You never find anywhere that you begin a count from a second day of something. What's the second day? Because the first day of Pesach was considered rather unique. That's when the Jews were sort of like born, and it had its own holiday. We're shortly going to learn what the Chinuch says about all this. But, be it as it may, the first day of Pesach is considered apart from all of this. We begin the count from the second day. But in any case, it takes the Ruach HaKodesh to settle in 30 days. It therefore didn't settle in, in this case, till the, after the 32nd day of the Omer. And on the 33rd is the equivalent of Nemli Yoyledes, like the 40 days for the woman that gives birth, which is the conclusion and completion and culmination of her becoming Tahar. Now, in the case of a person being born, it comes out that it's on day 40. In the case of the Jewish people, they had their bris then, so you begin really the count from then, so it's really only 33 days. It's not a total of 40, because it takes 8 days till you have the bris. In the case of the Jewish people, they had their bris by Pesach. It therefore becomes Lag Omer 33 days later, where the Neshama settles in comes out, therefore, that the very first Lagba Omer of Jewish history already signified in it some of these, some of the special aura that you have in Lagba Omer. Some of the special features and qualities of Lagba Omer were already there way before the mystery of Lagba Omer begins. So the mystery begins way back. Now we have two different things that happen in Lagba Omer. Lagba Omer is when the Neshama settled in the Guth, and Lagba Omer is the time that the Mon begins to fall. So these two aspects, namely the Parnosa aspect, as well as the spiritual aspect of the giving of the Torah, all have significant beginnings in Lagba Omer. All have significant beginnings in Lagba Omer, which was now the beginning of the aura of shoes. Actually, I should also point out that Lagbomer begins the third third of the time period between Pesach and Shavuos. Because if you divide the period into three parts, into thirds, the final third begins on Lagbomer, right? 17 times 3 is what? 51. So therefore, when you divide 50 to 3 parts, it comes out that you have day 17, day 33 or 34, depending on how you work that. That's again like Balmer. And now begins the last part of it. Interesting, the Gematri of 17 is told. Right? Uh, the, that's an interesting allusion to one of the customs that we have on Lag Balmer, which is bonfires. Vayar Elohim Esho'or, and God saw the light or the fire. He told that it is told. And therefore, 17 days before Shavuos, they start lighting bonfires to signify the beginning of what we're talking about, the beginning of the final period of preparation for the Torah, which begins on Lag Ba'omer when the Neshama finally settled into the Jewish people. It also relates, as we said, to the Parnassah 
that. So the monk, the monk also begins on Lag Balmer. So the mon, the Parnassus begins on Lag Balmer, as well as the spiritual settling in of the Neshama begins on Lag Balmer. These two events both began, although it's not mentioned in the Torah clearly, but we're able to discover it right over there. That on Lag Balmer, the very first Lag Balmer, when the Jews were anticipating the giving of the Torah, two very significant things happened to them. One, they were finally in the last stage of preparation, the last third the Tov preparation, the Torah is referred to as a Lekach Tov. And during the last stage of preparation and anticipation for the Torah begins a Lag Bomber. That's when their Brismila from Pesach finally takes effect and their spiritual um, potential has now been actualized in them, as well as that's when their Parnassus began with the month on Lag Bomber. So we already see there's something already happening the very first Lag Bomber related to Torah and to Parnassah. Again, nothing to do with mourning. Only with this countdown between Pesach and Shavuz. But Lag Bomber is a significant day in terms of both aspects of this. We shall see much, much more. Although, I don't know how much we're going to be able to do today. Okay. Now, we can finally begin the page which we're supposed to finish today. But I guess we're going to continue next week. First, before we even get to the more modern, when I say modern, I'm talking 2,000 years ago, it's modern, um, aspect of Lagbom, which is the morning part. Let's first take a look at what the Chinuch says in terms of the original intent. Because we have to like, trace what our original purposes were in the sphere period before we could fully appreciate how it works nowadays. Says the Chinuch, in Mitzvah Shin Beis, Start with Mitzvah Shin Beis. It's sort of the middle of your page. Mishroshe Mitzvah. At the root, at the heart of the Mitzvah of the Korban Omer. Here he's referring to the Mitzvah of the Korban Omer. Why should there be this Mitzvah? What does the Mitzvah signify? Because every single Mitzvah has certain moral or philosophical or theological or ethical lessons that could be derived from it. Every mitzvah seems to have something like that. And, you know, we all understand Pesach, Tefillin, most mitzvahs we can understand. But what exactly is this Omer offering, which has its own day, you know, its own day earmarked for it, which is the second day of Pesach, it seemingly doesn't really correct, connect in any way to the theme of Pesach, or for that matter to the theme of Shuas, but it's its own day of the Omer offering. There has to be some theme to it, not just another Corbin. I mean, every other Corbin that we have is linked to a holiday. Here we're kind of having a holiday being linked to a Corbin. You know, every other Corbin, Rosh Chodesh, fine, so you bring an offering. Rosh Hashanah, you bring an offering. Pesach, Shavuos, Sukkot, Shemini Atzeres, um, you know, all of these days, Yom Kippur, have special offerings but they themselves certainly are special. Here, out of nowhere, on the second day of Pesach, is the festival of the Omer, which is all revolving around this Korban. So what is this message behind the Korban? You, I mean, the Chinuch, of course, will go through all of the 613 mitzvahs, but he doesn't necessarily seek to find understanding behind every single Korban. But then again, a Korban is a Korban. So you want a general understanding of carbonus. But here we have a specific carbon. 
which is out of the clear blue, and it has a festival, a day that revolves around it. Why? Mishroshay HaMitzvah Kideshen is boinein mitoich ha-maisa ha-chesed ha-gwadol she-oisa Hashem Baruchu in B'yosef It's a way of reminding us, especially if you're living in an agricultural society, the yearly miracle of the new growth which sustains the world. If the food wouldn't grow, there would be starvation. So we have to remind ourselves on a yearly and an annual basis the great chesed that Hashem performs with His creatures. That on a yearly basis He allows the earth to produce to produce sustenance for us. He's not referring now to the time period. The time period may have had an agricultural basis to it as well. Before we take for ourselves, before we take pleasure for ourselves, like the whole Bikurim concept of giving the first offering to Hashem, there's an element of first offering of barley to Hashem, first grains to Hashem. Now, we touch Shanana, Ruin Lebracha. By doing that, I'm sorry, and as a result, we will become worthy of blessing, of divine blessing from Hashem. The Hechshem HaSeinu, in front of when we do the proper deed in front of Him, and therefore, Tizbarach Tzbosenu, it brings a flow of divine beneficence, and it brings a flow of divine blessing on all the grains. V'yashlim, Chayv Tashem which is, of course, God's desire to do good for us, but that we should open the spigots of blessing. This is a theme that the Chinuch uses throughout. Namely, God wants to do us benefit. But He wants us to be the ones that open up the faucet and open up the windows through which blessing will flow. And the way that that is done is by doing something sanctified in that which we want blessing for. And when we do something that sanctifies a species, that species now becomes blessed. Because by opening up the window, or the faucet, the spigot, by sanctifying something on behalf of God, it opens up the wellsprings of blessing, which then permeate and suffuse that entire species, and brings about blessing in that particular species. This is what Hashem wants. Therefore, since divine, since sustenance, material sustenance, is <coughs> dependent on the agricultural growth of grain which sustains the world, so we take the first offerings of the species that matures first, we offer it to God as a korban to Hashem, and thereby sanctifying it, thereby opening up the wellsprings of blessing through which the divine flow permeates the entire crop of grain for the year. Now one would maybe think that the first day of Pesach is a more appropriate time, as we said earlier, rather than the second. But again, says the Chinuch, in order that we shouldn't mix concepts or mix lessons, that the focus has to be clear. You have to understand that the first day of Pesach 
revolves around the creation of the Jewish people as a nation. The Jews were created on Pesach. We were born on Pesach. Let's not mix that with another philosophical or ethical or moral lesson and combine the two things. Ki Arishon, the first day of Pesach, Nochom, the first day is earmarked and set aside for the great miracle of the Exodus and God's might and power. Okay. So therefore he gives us a little bit of an insight into what the Corbin Omer is. This, by the way, adds, or certainly buttresses, a piece of the puzzle that we mentioned earlier. It's related to Parnassah. It's related not only to Parnassah, but it's related to our outlook on Parnassah. Namely, that God is the one that provides. Now already you could see somewhat of a connection to the mon. The whole idea of the Omer is to give a mon-like quality to our perspective on all sustenance. That even the grains that grow out of the earth are also mon. What was the bracha that the Jews said when they ate the mon? They said the following bracha. Baruch ato Hashem Elokeinu Melech Hamoitzi lechem min hashamayim. Right? That's the bracha that all Jews recited when they ate man. Hamoitzi lechem min hashamayim. And Hashem wants to remind us of this. And what do we say? Exact same bracha. Doesn't matter where it comes from, it comes from the same source. God created heaven and earth. He didn't just create the heavens, He created the earth. So we say the bracha as hamoitzi lechem. Min Horas. But the Torah wants to remind us. It doesn't matter. It's all the same thing. Our Parnassah comes from Hashem. And therefore, we are being reminded during the spirit period when things are growing that is the Zalbazach. It's all the same thing. And the Torah constantly connects the Omer of the Mon which is Hamalti Lechem in Hashemayim, to the Omer of the offering that we bring in the base of Migdash, Hamalti Lechem in Oret. The Torah tries to link the two as a constant reminder to emphasize that Hamalti Lechem in Oret and Hamalti Lechem in Hashemayim is the Zalbazach, and therefore the Mon was an Omer, this Korban is an Omer, and the constant mixing together and linking together is the only two places in the Torah where we find the Omer being used. And therefore now we can already have a kind of a significance in terms of the count why we seem to base it constantly on Omer rather than just on Pesach or on Shavuos. Because Omer now tells us an idea. The idea being faith and trust in Hashem which is a prerequisite to receiving the Torah. As we said earlier, Lo nitno Torah Torah was only given to people with this approach as we pointed out earlier from the Balatur. In the Pasuk of the Man, you have the entire olive base to signify Hamakayim, Tyrant, a person observes the Torah, Hashem provides the Parnassah. So there is a linkage between the Man, Parnassah, and our, not in the sense of Parnassah that we're going to have it, but Parnassah in the sense of our approach to Parnassah, to Hashem, it's linked with the Man and the receiving of the Torah. And it's a very significant lesson in and of itself. As the Chiluch says, Pesach teaches us tremendous philosophical lessons about God and Hashgacha and all of these things. But the Omer also is a lesson. 
It's a different lesson. It, in fact, if one wants to link it, why it works out very well the first or the second day of Pesach. Pesach is the foundation of Elmuna. The second day of Pesach, the Omer, is the foundation of Bitar. And that's what Jews have to have. Jews have to have more than just Elmuna, they have to have Bitar. And we all know what the difference is, right? Everybody here knows the difference between Elmuna and Bitar. Elmuna itself means belief. Bitar means trust and reliance. The first day of Pesach is Amuna. Amuna and Hashem. Amuna and all of the Yud Gimel Ikrim that the Torah represents. The Ramban, the Chinuch, all elaborate on this, of why the significance of Pesach is so significant, because Pesach is the foundation of everything that Jews believe. Pesach is the lesson. Again, going back to Brandon's uh, Bar Mitzvah Drasha, right? In the Tefillin, what do we have? Shema, that's the Jewish essence of faith and belief, rather, whatever we believe, as well as it's yes, it's right. Those three things are in, the, are in the Jewish tefillin. We wear it on our heads and our arms because the foundation of Jewish belief is found in the Shema and the Bohoyim Shema. That's known as the Jewish creed, right? Shema, Bohoyim Shema, the essence or the quintessence, if you will, of Judaism. And it's yes, it's right. It's yes, mirrors that and proves the foundations of, of belief. So therefore, that's the first day of Pesach. The Chinuch says not to mix, not to mix simchas, but it's also to signify these two foundations. First day of Pesach is Amuna. The second day is Bitochem. The second day is Omer. Omer is Bitochem to trust Hashem for our Hamoiti Lechem Min Ha'oretz, being the equivalent of Hamoiti Lechem and Hashemayim. It's Hainuach, the same thing. And therefore it goes back to the month. Now we could already see that with Lagva Omer, what you're having is the beginning of the month. The month came down on Lagva Omer. The Jewish Neshama in his own body becomes finally settled Lagva Omer. So we already now have a little bit of an understanding now of what happened the first year. The first Lagva Omer in Jewish history and the first seven-week period of Sphira. But what we see over here is now we finally threw in what the Omer was all about. It says the Chinuch, the Korban of the Omer, which again, it's unusual, because usually you have a holiday, a festival, so you have a Korban. Here you have a Korban, so you have a festival. And that's what the Omer is. The Omer is the Korban, and there's a festival built around it. Unlike the other Korban, the Chinuch doesn't go to explain the point of every other Korban. I mean, he explains about Korbanus in general. But the Korban for Pesach is because of Pesach, Shavuos, Shavuos, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkish, Miniateris, all of these have their own Korbanus because of the auspicious nature of the day. Rosh Chodesh, Rosh Chodesh is Rosh Chodesh, there's a Korban. All of a sudden, Mitten Bar Chava, bring a Korban. Count from the Korban, make a count, the whole thing, all around this Korban, the second day. What is it? It's the lesson of faith, of the Tochen, that Hashem is going to provide for us like he provided Hamoyti Lechem in Hashemayim, so also he provides Hamoyti Lechem Min Ha'aretz. That's what the Omer is about. Then comes the count. But the essence of Lo Torah El Mon, what does it mean that God only gave Torah to Mon eaters? It wasn't only because the Mon was a spiritual high. It wasn't only because Mon was a spiritual food and it wasn't only because Mon allowed the Jews to be able to 
to study the Torah. Was clearly, the Mon had these two aspects to it. The Mon was a spiritual food. It was sort of like semi-spiritual. It's called like it was made according to the Gemara in one of the intermediate heavens. It was just like there's a, there's a special heaven up there in the hierarchy of heavens from one to seven, where the Mon is made. There are the grinders of Mon up there. So the Mon is a semi-spiritual, semi-physical food. Which is why the concept of Omer was significant. Because how do we tell when something is spiritual or something is physical? We could tell from its volume, mass, quantity. In other words, we all know, and even in the physical world we know, that light is something which has certain non-normal physical qualities speed, the way it goes. It's, you know, light has a certain unique feature, which is why it's the closest thing in the physical world that we have that connects us to the spiritual. We always refer to light because of its own physical properties. We know in the base of Migdash that when the Jews bow down, miraculously there's enough space for everybody. We also know that in the Kodesh Kadosh, the Arna Kodesh didn't take up any space. I mean, you look at it, it took up space, it was a certain width. When you measure the size of the room, the Kodesh Kedoshim, and then measure from the wall to one end of the ark, and from the wall to the other end of the ark, and you'd add the two up, it would be the same thing as the total volume of the room. But miraculously, once you get to something that's spiritual, the laws of time and space, as we know them, don't, don't work anymore. Where's heaven? Where's God? You keep going to go up in the universe, you're going to get to God? It's not up or down, it's it's beyond time and space. So as you go to the spiritual, you are going beyond time and space, and volume is no longer volume. The mon was a food substance which they ate, but when they measured it and weighed it, it always weighed the same for everybody. Everybody got the same unit. The over represents a unit in volume that wasn't really volume. It was a kind of a spiritual volume, if you will. And everybody got the same amount. So the Torah pegs in the concept of the mon as well as the barley with volume. You know where else we have the Omer in terms of its volume used? And the story, the Gemara tells us that when Haman, after his decree or after his uh, thing that the king had to, to obliterate the Jews and to totally kill them, so he's walking around and he discovered Mordechai learning Torah with kids. And after the decree was nullified so he wants to see what the Jews are doing and they're learning the parsha of the Omer said Haman to them take a look how your little volume of Omer that, how much was it, it was a kmitzah well, the korban itself you only take a handful that little handful of barley counteracted and outweighed the 10,000 talents of silver that he gave for the genocide of the Jews again a little bit of volume is able to do so much. And again, what is the lesson that Haman learned from Mordechai's learning with the kids? You say, what are you learning about? You're learning about a Corbin in the base of Mikdash. What base of Mikdash? Where do you have a base of Mikdash? We have faith. We have faith there's going to be a base of Mikdash. We're going to rebuild it. We have faith we're going to bring Korbanus. And we have faith that we're going to bring the Omer. That faith sustained the Jews and counteracted whatever Haman did. That's what protected the Jews. So again, that little bit of volume, because volume is mass and that's physical. 
but we're dealing with something that's spiritual. And Omer represents the idea that the physical that you see is not really physical, it's really spiritual. So therefore it comes out like this. The Omer, on one level, it's because the man itself was a semi-spiritual food. And people that eat this food could receive the Torah. A second point, or a second level, is the fact that, of course, by receiving the man, the Jews were freed from the from the needs of Parnassah, and they could devote themselves and dedicate themselves to Torah study. But then there's a third level that goes with the month, and that's what we're speaking about now, the concept of faith. This week's parsha is the concept of Shemitah. Shemitah is the essence of faith. What he's referring to before was the Pasuk that says, O Saint Devaro, Lishmova Kol Devaro. So it says, Gibore Koach. Listen to the Pasuk in Tillam, referring to the Malachim, the angels that are gibore kav, that are mighty and valorous and powerful. Says the Gemara, who are those people that are mighty and powerful? Shomer Shviyas, those people that observe the Shviyas. Because the constant need to have constant faith requires almost an angelic quality of faith. And the Mon required that degree of faith. How do we know that? Because if it was only true that the purpose of the Mon would be to give Jews a semi-spiritual food and to free them from the yoke of earning a living in order that they should be able to devote themselves to Torah study so the man didn't have to miraculously fall every single day and rot every single day. It could have fallen once a year. You would have put it into your IRA. You would have put it into your whatever, your account. And you would have had a month to subsist for a year. And God only has to make a miracle once. Why have to have constant repetition of a miracle which is seemingly unnecessary. God, we know, never performs unnecessary miracles. To perform a miracle, there has to be either a message, a lesson, or a need. God doesn't perform miracles for no reason. So the miracle of whatever the mom was there for could have been reduced by just having it once a year, once a month. And then they would have had whatever they needed to subsist. Says of Shimbayochoi. Look at the Gemara in the middle. From a Gemara in Yuma Dafayin Vavam and Alpha, we learned Shal Talmidov as Rabbi Shimon Ben Yochoi. We will talk about why next time, why the significance that this statement comes from Rabbi Shimon Ben Yochoi, again related to Lag Bomer. We'll see. How come one didn't only come down once a year? In other words, obviously their question was why does God make this seemingly a repetitive miracle daily? It's unnecessary. Let me give you the following parable to what it could be compared to. A human king that has an only child and he wants to support and give everything that he has to his child and therefore he gives him an annual stipend, an annual budget, an annual stipend. Once a year. As a result, we all know what happened. So he'd come and visit his father once a year. You know, when the bank account ran out and the credit card bills were, you know, were dry, he needs a replenishment, he needs a fill-up, he has a big tank, so you go and have to fill up less often, right? The bigger the tank your car has, the less often you have to go to the gas station. So the king gives his son a year's supply, a huge tank, he comes for the fill-up once a year. 
during the once a year that he comes to fill up, that's when he sees his father. The father was not too happy with this. He therefore said, you know what? I'm going to give you a much smaller tank. A smaller tank. And therefore you're going to get your Mizaynas every day, a day supply, and it's going to rot. As a result, the son had to come and speak and meet his father daily. Let's say you have a Jew who in his family has four or five children. He has to worry about where he's going to provide for them. He's in the wilderness, in the desert. There is no here. And if mud would fall every single year, he knew he didn't have to worry about his children for another year. But if he only has a day's supply, and tomorrow they're going to be crying, Daddy, Mommy, I'm hungry. He was worried. Where am I going to get food for tomorrow? I'm here in the desert. How do I know it's going to be month tomorrow? It was month today, but that's a miracle for today. Maybe tomorrow the month will not miraculously fall. Nimsu kulan mesim, and my children will all die. Barov in hunger. Nimsu kulan mechabnes libon maviyam shebashemaim. On a daily basis, people have to constantly focus on Hashem. The lesson of the month was not merely that it's a semi-spiritual food. The point of the month was not merely to free the Jews up from the daigas of Parnassah, which it did, it accomplished both of those purposes. It was a spiritual food. And yes, it freed the Jews up so they could learn Torah. So, Torah was given to mom eaters. Those that are free and could learn Torah, those that are able to eat this semi-spiritual food, but there's a third and more crucial lesson in the month. The man had to daily replenish itself in order to teach the lesson of bitachon. We said earlier, the Omer offering the second day of Pesach. The first day is dedicated to Amuna. The second day of Pesach is dedicated to bitachon. Bitachon means faith in Hashem. The lesson of the man was precisely that. That on a daily basis, you have to have faith in Hashem that He's going to provide for you. So therefore, lo nitna Torah la elam ochleimon means something else. Torah was only given to people that are able to have faith in Hashem. And therefore, the Korban owner represents the same idea. That Hamaiti lechem in the arts is identical to Hamaiti lechem in Hashemayim, the same owner. And lo nitna Torah la means only people that are able to have this degree of faith in Hashem can learn Torah. What did Yirmiya tell the Jews? Why don't you learn Torah? So what did they say? Parnosa. In other words, what are we going to do for security? What does Yirmiya respond? Look at the mon. What is mon? Mon means now you can learn Torah. Look at the mon, learn Torah. You have to have faith. So one of the crucial messages of the mon, and therefore there's three aspects of the mon. It's a semi-spiritual food. Yes, it frees the Jews up, they can learn Torah. But mon is a lesson of faith. It's a constant lesson of faith that has to be done constantly. Just like it says that who are the Gibore Koach, those that keep the Shemitah, and on a daily basis have to have these superhuman, angelic powers to have faith in Hashem. Shemitah is a lesson of faith in Hashem, not once yearly, but daily. You have to go through a whole year. Shemitah contains the other components as well. Shemitah frees you up. It frees you up to learn Torah. That's what the concept of a sabbatical is. 
The reason the sabbatical doesn't mean you go on vacation on the around the world cruise. Oh, I'm taking a sabbatical. Now I can go on a around the world cruise. I saved up enough money so I have the security. That's what it means today. I saved enough money. I have security. Now let me spend it. Now I'm going to go around the world and indulge myself. Sabbatical means I'm going to take off a year to learn Torah. What am I going to live off of? Month, faith, every single day. So the lesson of the month is faith, and only then can you learn Torah. The purpose of the Shemitah was to spend a year learning Torah. It was a message that if you want to learn Torah and have a sabbatical, you have to subsist on a mon like faith in Hashem. Because of the message of faith and be talking. The Korban Omer is precisely that. The Korban Omer on the second day of Pesach that we count from. So therefore, the, now there's already a connection. We said before, what does the agricultural part have to do with the Torah anticipation of receiving the Torah? But it has a great deal to do with it. Because if the essence of Torah is the Torah to moneyers, and the lesson of that is faith, so therefore we need a constant reminder throughout the sphere of the message of the Omer. The message of the Omer harks back to the month. The Korban Omer is identical to the month. It's a lesson of faith. And that's why we call it even the Omer. Because the Omer means the quantity, that spiritual quantity, and that little bit that could overcome everything. The little bit of the of the Omer, the little bit of the um, Koimitz, was able to out-counteract Holland's 10,000 talents of silver. Because their faith in having a base of Mignesh, their faith that they're going to renew themselves and have a Korban and have a base of Mignesh and renew the Jewish faith was the key to Jewish survival. But therefore, that's the Omer. And that's why that little bit of quantity, quantitatively, it's little. Qualitatively, it's a great deal. Why? Because of the component of faith that's in it. The Omer is the lesson of faith, that's the Korban of faith. And that's why we have to count down to the receiving of the Torah with a message of faith that has to run hand in hand with it.